This podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be relied upon as consulting legal, financial, or professional advice. A professional advisor should be consulted regarding your specific situation. My guest today is Tai Busada of Edgepoint Wealth Management. Tai co-founded Edgepoint in 2008 on the simple premise that investment firms should be run by investment people. Tai and his three co-founders, Patrick Farmer, Jeff McDonald, and Bob Krimble, have been building wealth for Canadian families for nearly 50 years through a time-tested investment approach. Back in 2008, they recognized that the Canadian investment industry was primarily focused on an asset-gathering model that served the interests of the investment firm over the individual investor. Edgepoint was created to serve the interests of that investor only. Over the last 12 years, Ty and the team at Edgepoint have built one of the most unique investment firms in Canada today. Edgepoint is a private, owner-operated investment firm based in Toronto. All 80 internal partners working at Edgepoint today co-invest in their own products, fully aligning them with the 280,000 Canadian investors who have entrusted their hard-earned savings for Ty and the team to manage. Ty is the co-lead manager on the Edgepoint investment team and in his 25th year managing money. Welcome to the program, Ty. Really happy to be here, Alan. Thank you very much for having me today. 2020 was a really interesting year. The market set new highs and the Edgepoint Global Portfolio was flat. Maybe you can start by commenting on this. Alan, happy to answer that. Before I do though, let me set the stage about how we think about short-term performance. Our goal is to compound people's wealth. Since we started our business back in 2008, we've done a pleasing job of that. A person who invested $10,000 into our global portfolio back in November of 2008 has seen that grow to 46,000 and that's at the end of 2020. It's even higher than that now. That's what we care about. Our goal isn't to have the best performance in any given year. We think it's a fool's game to chase short-term performance. Now, let's go to your 2020 question. So the market was up and we were flat last year, why? The answer lies more in what we didn't own in 2020 than what we owned. For the most part, the businesses in our portfolio performed well in 2020, especially given COVID. However, there was a small group of companies that we're going to call the obvious growers that did really well last year and represented a material weight in the index. And this small group of companies came into the year what we thought was very high valuations and only got more expensive throughout the year. So why did these companies perform especially well in 2020? Uh, we think the answer was uncertainty. During periods of uncertainty, investors uh, really just want to flock to what is certain. So when the global pandemic hit, investors flocked to a group of businesses that were very likely going to grow in 2020. Think businesses like Netflix, for example. And they didn't seem to care at all about valuation. All they cared about was the fact that these businesses had the opportunities to grow in the short term. We think valuation is always important. So we chose not to own these businesses. Uh, Let me try and add some color to this valuation point now. Um, We pulled a bunch of data, and if you look at the largest 750 companies in the United States by year, dating back to 1952, and you pull out the 10% of those companies that are the most obvious growers, and you compare the valuation of those 75 companies to the rest of the larger group by year, what you'll notice is the relative valuation, what you're being asked to pay for growth in 2020, has never been higher. So said differently, 
over the last 70 years, it's never been more expensive to go out there and buy growth. And that includes periods like the dot-com bubble. So that is worrisome. And if you look at what's happened in history, when these 75 obvious growers get expensive relative to the rest of the group, in subsequent years, they materially underperform because valuation always seems to matter. So why does this happen? Well, let me put it this way. People are at point A today and they want to get to, let's say, retirement, which is what we'll call point B. The problem that most people have when it comes to investing is they want to make decisions around how to get to point B based on their emotions around point A. If something bad's happening in the world, they look for the obvious stuff to do around point A. Things like buy the obvious growers. The problem is you're experiencing the same emotions as everyone else. So that makes you want to invest in what everyone else is investing. And this is called consensus investing. And consensus is good in a lot of fields, but it's terrible in investing. For example, if you have to go in for heart surgery, you want consensus among the medical professionals on the best way to perform that heart surgery. Or if you're about to drive over a bridge, you want consensus among engineers on how to build that bridge, for example. But investing, consensus has time and time again proven to be very detrimental to the creation of long-term wealth for investors. Doing what makes you feel comfortable in the short term has never proven to be a good strategy. So what was consensus in 2020? Well, it was by the obvious growers. And although owning the obvious growers in 2020 worked, we do not think that it'll help longer term on your journey to point B from this point because of the relative valuation and the stuff that we just walked through. Now, let me be very clear at this point. We don't have anything against a lot of these obvious growers. In fact, in the past, we've owned a lot of these businesses. Microsoft's a great example. We owned Microsoft for three or four years at EdgePoint, and I think it was up about 100% during that period of time for investors. So it delivered pleasing returns. There's a lot of high-quality businesses on this list of obvious growers, but I think the important point to make is, is that there's a big difference between being a high-quality business and a good investment. And let me try and drive this point home using an example that most listeners will probably be quite familiar with. If you go back in 2000, everybody knew the internet was going to grow very quickly. And if you believe that the internet was going to grow very quickly, you probably believe that Cisco, who sold switches and routers to make the internet work, was going to grow quickly. Cisco was essentially the plumber for the internet. So if the internet was growing, Cisco was going to grow. And here's the interesting thing. If you believe that Cisco is going to grow for the next 20 years, you would have been absolutely dead right. Their revenue grew by 330% over that 20-year period of time. What was your reward for being right about Cisco growing in line with the growth of the internet over the last 20 years? Well, if you'd bought the stock back in 2000 and compared the share price to the share price in 2020, you would have been cut in half over two decades. You would have lost half your money over two decades while Cisco's revenue grew by 330%. Why did that happen? Because you overpaid for growth when you bought Cisco. So there is a big difference between being a high quality company and a good investment. What we are very focused on is trying to buy growth and not pay for it at EdgePoint. So we're focused on trying to find those unique insights in the market where we're not being asked to pay for growth. Okay, that's, that's helpful context. Now, let me ask you though, if you look at 2020, it looks like your performance was negatively impacted by COVID from January through to August. 
But then your relative and absolute performance turned really around in the last four months of the year. Did you change something about how you were managing money? That's a great question. Super important, Alan. Thanks for asking it. Let me be very clear. We changed absolutely nothing about our investment approach. Our investment approach is really the cornerstone of what we do. It's proven very successful over many decades. And the reality is, is in order to beat the market in the long term like we have, you can't look like the market in the short term. So you have to be willing to look wrong in the short term sometimes in order to be right in the long term. I talked about this briefly at the beginning of the interview, but let me dig into it for a second. Our goal is to help investors get to their point B. Let me be even more clear here. Our goal is to compound wealth over time for investors who entrust us with their hard-earned savings. Our goal is not to have the best-looking performance in any given year. And this is a super important concept to understand, so permit me a little bit of time here to expand using some real live data. And I'd like to talk about our global portfolio here. It's, it's the largest of our four portfolios, so it's probably the best one to talk about. If you look at this portfolio's compound annual return since its inception back in 2008, the return is compounded at about 13.3% annually up until the end of December 2020. So delivering this type of compound return has resulted in us turning a $10,000 investment in the portfolio on day one into $46,000 today or 12 years later. That helps investors achieve their long-term financial goals. This type of performance that I'm talking about over the last dozen years or so puts us near the top of the heap over that time frame. That's what we care about. We realize it's impossible to consistently have the best performance in any given year. So we're focused on compounding wealth over the long term, which at the end of the day is all that matters. Now, most people fumble around trying to get the best performing short term performance when in reality, what really matters is long term compounding. The reason most people can't experience long term compounding is because investment approaches that have a track record of delivering long-term compounding results have a tendency of looking wrong in the short term sometimes. So look, the investor says to themselves, these guys don't have a good one or two year performance anymore. So I'm going to bail out and buy into whatever's hot. And they're always chasing the next best thing that has great short-term performance. And the irony is that leads to their worst nightmare coming true, which is permanent loss of capital. Let me be even more blunt here. Permanent loss of capital is really just a polite way of saying running out of money before you die. Now, that sounds scary. Can you actually point to examples of what you're talking about? I can, Alan. Look, history is littered with examples of chasing short-term performance only to experience permanent loss of capital in the long term. If, if you look at my lifetime, so I'm 50, if you go back over the last 50 years, uh, there have been countless examples of uh, people chasing the next best thing only to really experience permanent loss of capital because of getting caught up in that. Let me just give you a few quick examples from, from my lifetime. When I was first born, it was the Nifty 50 in the early 1970s. That was all the rage, and that eventually led to really bad performance for people over the next 10 years. And by the late 1970s, it had changed from the Nifty 50 to oil and gas. Everyone had to be in oil and gas, and that hurt everybody. Then in the 80s, it was Japan. Then in the early 1990s, you had a couple of bubbles going on. The beginning of the 1990s, it was emerging markets. Everyone was rushing into emerging markets. That didn't end well. And then by the late 1990s, it was the dot-com boom and the Cisco example I spoke of earlier. And obviously that didn't end well. 
And then in the mid-2000s, it was all about real estate, the U.S. housing boom, for example, housing booms in Europe and countries like Ireland and Spain. So, yeah, there have been a lot of examples just over the last 50 years alone. Just to be clear, you think that we are at similar levels to those points you just referenced from a euphoria perspective? Well, Alan, I want to be clear. I, I think it's actually uh, worse today. I've been doing this for about 25 years, and in that period of time, I've never seen an opportunity for the average investor to do as poorly over the next decade as I do right now. <laughs> wow, that's a statement. Can, can we get specific for a second here? Are you saying that businesses like Tesla are at bubble valuations? I'm guessing from your question, Alan, that you know a few people that own Tesla. If you do, have you ever asked them why they own it? I'm guessing that you'd probably get a superficial answer like the cars are cool or electric vehicles of the future. I think the truth is, is most people own a business like Tesla because of fear of missing out or FOMO. You know, they, they know someone who's making a bunch of money on Tesla and they want in on the action. And quite frankly, if you look at history, this is always how bubbles are formed. And it's what leads people to running out of money before they die. You know, FOMO was behind all of those examples of permanent loss of capital I just walked through when I went through the last 50 years of, of bubbles. And if someone actually studies Tesla like a rational business person would, then this is what they would likely see. First, the company has close to a $900 billion market cap if you count all of their shares outstanding. That means the people who own Tesla think it's worth more than the value of all of the other car companies in the world combined. Look, Tesla sold about half a million cars last year, less than 1% of all the cars sold on planet Earth. So the other guys, their competition, produce more than 99% of all the cars. So if you own Tesla, I'm guessing you believe that they're going to produce almost all the cars in the world someday because you're paying more for Tesla today than all the other car companies combined. Practically every company in the world will have an electric offering in 2021. So it's going to be hard for Tesla to maintain a 10% market share, never mind 100% market share. If you look at Tesla's sales of their Model S, they peaked in 2017 and have been going down since. If you look at their Model X sales, they peaked in 2018 and they've been going down since. And then if you look at valuation, if you own Tesla, you're paying 450 times profits for it. Imagine for a second, to put this into perspective, that you own a really nice business that makes a million dollars a year in profit, and I show up and offer you $450 million for your company. I'm guessing that even if you thought your business was going to grow by leaps and bounds in the future, you would take my $450 million as fast as you could. If you own Tesla today, you're the person paying the equivalent of $450 million for a business that makes a million dollars a year. So, Alan, if you know someone who owns Tesla, you should ask them what they know about Tesla that isn't already priced into the share price. If they say they don't know anything in particular, then I sure hope they don't need the money they have invested in Tesla for retirement. Okay, so if the market is expensive, how are you finding opportunities in this market? Well, first of all, we don't own the market. If you look at our global portfolio, we own around 30 businesses. If we own each one of those businesses for five years each, then the math says that we have to find six new ideas per year. And we have a team of a dozen people scouring the world for those six ideas all year long. It really takes that much effort to find six investable ideas a year in, in the markets today. Can you give me an example of something you own? Sure, Alan, I'd be happy to. Uh, let me just think here. Uh, okay, let me pick a company 
called TE connectivity. And the reason I'm picking TE connectivity is it has to do with your question about Tesla earlier. We've owned TE connectivity for a number of years and uh, we continue to own it. It's one of our larger holdings. First of all, what does TE connectivity do? They make connectors. So what is a connector? A connector is something that connects two points and allows information or electricity current to run between those two points. TE's major end market is the automotive market. About half their business is selling connectors into cars. And what's interesting about this is, is that your car is becoming more electrified, which means that it needs more connectors. Think about your infotainment system in your car, for example, or think about all the sensors around your car for safety when you're backing up. Uh, all of those sensors are connected to the central brain of your car via connector. So what this means is, Every year, the content that TE sells into a car goes up by between 4 and 6%. So that means that even if the number of cars produced every single year doesn't change, TE's business should grow by 4 to 6% per year because their content going into every car that's produced is growing by 4 to 6% per year. So now let's go back to how this relates at all to Tesla. If you think about the amount of connectors that go into an electric vehicle like Tesla's base model, the amount of connectors per electric vehicle is twice the amount of content that goes into an internal combustion engine vehicle. So if you believe that the future is electric vehicles, then TE is a very good investment because their business is going to grow even more rapidly in the future than it has been in the past. Because if that transition to EV happens more quickly, their business is going to grow more quickly. So then if you step back and you ask yourself, okay, well, lots of growth ahead for TE connectivity. They are in an attractive market that is going to benefit from a transition to electric vehicles. What am I being asked to pay for TE connectivity? Well, the answer is, is about 22 times earnings as opposed to 450 times earnings for Tesla. So you can see that in spite of having the same end market drivers, we believe we're buying growth and not paying for it in TE connectivity. So that's an example of something we own. Okay, thanks for that example. Now, I want to go back to the fear of missing out problem for a second. How does an investor avoid falling into these traps? Alan, the reality is it's one of the most difficult things in the world to do. If making money in the stock market were anything other than excruciatingly difficult, the world would be rich, and it isn't rich for a reason. It's really difficult to separate yourself from your emotions when it comes to investing, to zig when other people are zagging. To increase the chances of success, I think an investor really has to do two things, in my opinion. One, they have to find a good financial advisor that could help them navigate their emotions through time. And two, they, they have to work with that financial advisor to find an investment approach that they can actually understand and that they believe in, an approach that makes sense to them. If the approach makes sense to them, then they're going to be able to stick with it during those periods of underperformance for the investment approach. And sticking with it during those short-term periods of underperformance increases their chances of experiencing the compounding. So here's some more color on this. Since we started EdgePoint 12 years ago, we've gone through six different periods of time where we look completely stupid. And in spite of that, our performance since the inception of our portfolios is near the top of the heap. So an investor who bailed during one of those six periods of time would not have benefited from the compounding of the approach. 
they wouldn't have turned $10,000 into $46,000 because they would have bailed during one of those six periods of time. Here's another interesting thing about us, Alan. If history is a guide, we usually are adding the most value for our investors when we look most wrong in the short term. This is basically a fancy way of saying that we've been able to avoid bubbles in the past. And this has really helped with compounding our investors' wealth, even though it means sometimes we have to look wrong in the short term when we don't own things like Tesla that just don't make sense to us. You've referenced your investment approach a number of times. Can you please spend a, a few more minutes talking about it? I'd be happy to, Alan. Look, I could talk for hours about our investment approach, but I'm going to really try and boil it down to a minute or two. At a basic level, we see ourselves as long-term investors in businesses. We don't view a stock as just a piece of paper. We view a stock as an ownership interest in a company, and we try and buy these ownership stakes at prices below our assessment of their true worth. And we believe that the best way to buy a business at an attractive price is to have an idea about the business that isn't widely shared by others. And that's what we refer to as proprietary insights. I walked through some of our proprietary insights earlier as it related to T connectivity. Now, let me contrast this approach with other approaches in the market that seem to be quite popular today. And I'll, I'll do it using an example. Imagine that everything you own is taken away from you and in exchange for all of those assets, you're given a million dollars and told you have to invest this money in a business to protect your family for the next 50 years. Now, imagine I show up on your doorstep and say that I've got this business to sell you and the price that I put on my business is a million dollars. And you say, oh, geez, as it turns out, I have to buy a business and I have a million dollars and tell me about your business. And then I say to you, the only thing that I'm going to tell you is, is that the share price of my business has been going up pretty consistently for the last nine months. Give me your money. I'm not going to tell you anything about, you know, the quality of the company, the management team, how fast it's growing. I'm not going to tell you what the company even does. All I'm going to tell you is, is that the share price has been going up pretty consistently for the last nine months. Give me your money that's there to feed, shelter, and clothe your family for the next 50 years. Would you do it? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, we wouldn't invest in that fashion. But would it surprise you to know that billions of dollars every single hour exchange hands in the stock market based on this investment approach? It's called price momentum. And in fact, it was one of the best performing strategies in 2020 just to buy a business whose share price had gone up recently. It doesn't make any sense when I put it in the context that I just did, but billions of dollars exchange hands based on that investment approach every single hour in the stock market. Let me give you another example. Imagine I show up on your doorstep. You still have the million dollars. You still have to invest. I show up on your doorstep and I say to you, look, I've got this business I want to sell you. And the price that I put on my business is a million dollars. Give me the money that's there to feed, shelter, and clothe your family for the next 50 years. And I'll give you my business. And uh, you're going to say, well, tell me about your business. And I'm going to say, see these two little lines on this pretty little chart I have? Every time they cross, it's a good time for you to give me your money and for me to give you my business. I'm not going to tell you anything else. I'm not going to tell you about sales growth, margins. I'm not going to tell you what the business does. I'm not going to tell you about, you know, barriers to entry in the business, management, management succession, anything that you'd worry about as a common sense investor. All that I'm going to tell you about is that these two lines have crossed. Give me the money that's there to feed, shelter, and clothe your family. Would you do it? Again, a rhetorical question. 
you would absolutely not do it. But would it surprise you to know that billions of dollars every single minute in the stock market exchange hands based on this approach? It's got a lot of different names, one of which is technical analysis. But nonetheless, people use this strategy as a way of investing. I'm guessing you probably wouldn't, but somehow when you throw people's money in the stock market, they accept these other ways of, of investing money. At the end of the day, what you would do is exactly what we do day after day here when investing people's money. You'd say, look, Ty, I do have to invest my family's money in a business, but I don't want to follow it for a day or a week or a month or a quarter, but I want to follow it for years before committing the capital. I want to see lots of sales growth. I want to see barriers to entry in the business that's going to protect the margins inside the business. I want to see a great management team with the management succession plan in place. I really want to understand the business as well. And by the way, I want all of these awesome things and I don't want to pay for it. I want to buy it at a discount to what it's truly worth because I want to be able to capture the upside with my million dollars. That is exactly what we do here day after day. So what you would do if you were asked to engage your family's future in one business is what we do here day after day. We approach each business that we buy as if it's the only business that's going to feed, shelter, and clothe our family. And you might say, okay, Ty, that's easy to say, a lot tougher to prove. But at Edgepoint, it's exceptionally easy to prove because collectively, the 80 partners at Edgepoint are the second largest owners of the same funds that our investors own. So we eat our own cooking. So when we actually buy a business, we're thinking that that business has to feed, shelter, and clothe our families for the next 50 years because we actually own it just like the investors do. That does sound like a common sense business approach. How does your investment approach address risk? Alan, we have a really different way of thinking about risk when it comes to the stock market. If, if you went out onto the street and stopped 100 random people and asked them how they define risk in the stock market, my guess is 100 out of 100 would call risk volatility. And uh, we just think that's purely wrong. We think the true definition of risk is the opportunity for permanent loss of capital. So when we look at buying a business, we look at common sense risk. We look at risk to revenue growth, risk to margin contraction, risk to barriers to entry coming down, risks to management quality, risk to not knowing what you're doing. So again, it comes down to being a common sense business person and approaching investing with a, a common sense view of risk as well. Okay, that makes sense. But if, if risk isn't volatility, then what is? Our view of volatility is, is volatility is the friend of the investor who knows the value of a business and it's the enemy of the investor who doesn't. So what does that mean? Well, look, let me give you another example. If we went back out onto the same street and I stood in front of a fancy car uh, that's worth, say, $50,000 and said, I'm going to sell these cars for a dollar each, what would happen? Well, you'd have a lineup, you know, of 10 kilometers long of people trying to buy these $50,000 cars for a buck. And tomorrow, if I were selling them for two bucks, you'd have people lined up even further, probably 50 kilometers long, because word's gotten out now that these cars are being sold for two bucks and they wouldn't begrudge the fact that yesterday they cost a buck and today they cost two because they know that the cars are worth 50 grand. And likewise, if I held up a cup of Timorin's coffee and said, 
that I'm a buyer of these cups of coffee for a million dollars each, what would happen? Well, you'd run out and buy as many cups as you could carry and try and sell them to me for a million bucks. And tomorrow, if I'm a buyer at half a million, you do the same thing and not think, oh, yesterday I got a million, today I'm only getting half a million. Why? Because you know the value is a buck or two. But let me ask you this. What happens if the price of the company that owns Tim Hortons, a business that we actually own in our portfolios, what happens if that price on the stock market goes down by, say, 20% in a day? Well, the average investor panics. Why? Because there's very little as uncomfortable in life as watching the price of something you own go down if you don't know what the value of that something is. It's our job to know the value of the businesses that we own or that we're thinking about buying in the portfolio so we can capitalize on that volatility in the same way that a person on the street would know that you know, buying a $50,000 car for a buck or two is a good deal or selling a cup of Tim Hortons coffee for a million dollars or half a million dollars is a good deal. It's our job to capitalize on the volatility in the stock market of the company's share prices. Hopefully, Alan, that answers your question on volatility. Sure does. Thanks for joining us today, Ty. It's been very informative. Alan, thanks very much for the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, Stay well. This podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be relied upon as consulting legal, financial, or professional advice. A professional advisor should be consulted regarding your specific situation. Information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. No endorsement of any third parties or their advice, opinions, information, products, or services is expressly given or implied by Edgepoint Investment Group. This podcast contains certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance results, and the actual results or market developments may differ materially from these statements. The whole or any parts of this podcast may not be reproduced, copied, transmitted, or disclosed to third parties without the consent of Edgepoint Investment Group. The Edgepoint Global Portfolio, Series A, referred to in the video, has the following annualized net of fees returns in Canadian dollars as of December 31, 2020. One year, minus 1.16%. Three years, 2.63%. Five years, 7.42%. Ten years, 11.58%. Since inception, on November 17, 2008, 13.36%.